The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. I'm Margarita, a researcher here at the IAI. Hi, and I'm Amari, one of the producers here at the IAI. Today we've got Free Will is Not an Illusion, featuring renowned physiologists and one of the pioneers of systems biology, Dennis Noble. This took place in 2022 at the How the Light Gets In Festival in London, the philosophy festival produced by the team here at the IAI. So Amari, tell us a bit about this talk. This talk explores biology and determinism, whether or not we truly have any free will at all, or in fact, we are biologically determined. Dennis Noble presents interesting arguments that this common materialist view that in fact free will is just an illusion and our choices are made by the chemical goings on of our brains is actually a mistake. Interesting. What do you think? Do you think free will is an illusion? I think there are good reasons to thinking that our concept of free will, as it's ordinarily discussed, is probably real. But when you get into the technical terms, into the philosophical lines of argument, I think what Dennis is really doing here is saving this commonplace understanding of free will. Interesting. And before we start, remember that if you enjoy today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Now it's time to welcome Dennis Noble to Philosophy for Our Times. Thank you very much. It may seem utterly presumptuous for a physiologist, because that's what I am, to enter the hotly disputed philosophical area of free will. So I'll begin by making two bold assertions that I will justify during the talk. The first is that the processes by which living organisms make choices are indeed open to empirical investigation. The relevant questions I will show are empirical, physiological questions as much as they are conceptual, philosophical ones. The second is that these two aspects, the empirical and the conceptual, are necessarily related because we cannot ask, answer empirical scientific questions in a conceptual vacuum. No science can exist in a conceptual vacuum. So I will not be arguing that physiology alone can answer all the questions independent of philosophy, but I will be arguing the complement to that statement, which is that philosophy alone 
is also inadequate to the task. Now, the reason, or one reason, why it is such a hotly disputed area is that to many people it may seem obvious that since organisms are made of and evolved from chemical compounds and systems, they cannot possibly escape from being chemically determined. We don't expect purely chemical processes to be capable of making responsible decisions. That's one of the reasons why we are cautious about approving driverless cars on our streets. The ethical and legal problems depend not on the science, or not on that primarily, but on attributing legal responsibility, whether to the owners of the cars or to the car makers. But in both cases, you'll notice the ultimate responsibility is attributed to humans, not to that machine. Yet, I'm going to show you in this talk that precisely because of the kinds of chemistry that enable organisms to exist even, let alone behave in the way they do, they cannot be determinate machines. So what exactly are we made of? What is our chemistry? Well, with the exception of a few trace elements, we are largely made of the most common chemical elements in the universe. Hydrogen, carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen, just those four, make up the vast majority of the chemistry of our bodies. Now, of course, they are combined in unimaginably large number of possible ways, because many of the molecules we are made of are polymers, long strings of highly variable composition. DNAs, RNAs, and proteins are all long polymers. Threads of sequences of either nucleotides or amino acids. Your DNA and mine consists or strings of nucleotides forming polymers around three billion nucleotides long. There wouldn't, incidentally, be enough stuff in the whole universe for all those possible sequences of three billion DNA bases even to exist. Now, each of us might be, as I think we are, a highly unique and improbable machine, but we might still be machines determined by our genes and proteins. My demonstration that we cannot be determinate machines begins with just two of those four elements, hydrogen and oxygen. Combined, they make the smallest and the great majority of all the molecules in our bodies, H2O, water. Now, water is an extremely unusual substance in the universe. It is liquid at a range of temperatures way above the maximum temperature at which both of its atoms could be liquids. Oxygen vaporizes at minus 90 centigrade, hydrogen at minus 253. So the bonding in H2O is responsible for an enormous increase in the temperature of condensation. There are very few other chemicals that have that property. It is also a very flexible solvent. Nearly all the molecules in our bodies can be dissolved in it, but the exception is extremely important to what I'm going to present as my argument. Fats cannot be dissolved in water. They can exist in a water suspension. Every good cook knows how to make a sauce by whisking up the oil water suspension. But our bodies are rather different from a sauce, thank goodness. The fats in us are actually more like soap bubbles than fat globules. And those bubbles form 
the vast structures of membranes in our cells and organs. Furthermore, those membranes are where nearly all the control processes, which would be relevant to choice, are to be located. So how on earth did the genome? They're not fats. They're not in the membranes. How on earth did they become described as the book of life, creating us body and mind, as Dawkins puts it in his book, The Selfish Gene? If that were so, the conditional logic necessary for life to be possible would have to be found in the genome. Now, I am a computer programmer, amongst other things, as well as being a biologist. If you look for all of those if-then-else clauses in a computer program, you will not find them anywhere in your genomes. No one has ever found a program of life or a blueprint in a genome. And we've been looking for over 20 years at complete genome sequences. There are switches in genomes. Absolutely so, many of them. But those switches are controlled by other physiological processes that form the control routines that enable choice to happen. Those routines depend on the protein channels packed into the fats, the lipid membranes. They are conditional on-off switches, and they therefore can form part of a choice process. Furthermore, those membranes and their proteins are influenced by the electrical and chemical processes that only membranous systems can display and be sensitive to. Without those membrane processes, there could not be choice between different behavioral options. Choice, obviously, don't need a philosopher to tell you this, is an essential element in any theory of variable free action. Not surprisingly, therefore, all our nerve cells, too have these controllable on-off switches. So do all the cells in our body. Possibility of systems that can make choices therefore arose when the first cells emerged with their membranes during the evolutionary process. That is where intelligence became possible in living systems. And what I mean by intelligence here is the ability to distinguish between and choose between behavioral options, just as artificial intelligence machines do. I'm not at this stage concerned with whether those choices are made consciously. I'm only showing that the intelligence of life therefore lies in our membranes and the variable processes that they enable, not in our genomes. Now, haven't finished, because not only is water a remarkable liquid solvent, it freezes in an unusual way. Ice is lighter than liquid water. The molecules become further apart in, in, in ice compared to the liquid form, so it floats on our lakes and seas. All other possible solvents do the reverse. You won't find another solvent in the universe that can do what water does. Their frozen forms would sink. That fact is why we don't expect to find living organisms, certainly not of the kind we know here on Earth, independent of water elsewhere in the universe. Moreover, since ice floats, large expanses of water in lakes and seas remain open to living systems. They continue to flourish even beneath the ice. The ice even acts as a heat barrier because it's uh, a good insulator. And we think 
That is, biologists think that is why life on Earth survived the long periods, very long indeed, when the Earth was like an ice ball. Life as we know it may therefore exist elsewhere in the solar system, on planets or moons that are completely iced over. Now, so far, none of the properties of water that I've highlighted, which are very unusual, can alone justify my argument that living organisms can have free choice. But there is another property of water which does form a key fact in the argument, and it was first observed in 1827 by a scientist called Robert Brown. He ground up pollen grains to form even smaller particles, pollen dust, if you like. He then sprinkled that fine dust into water under a microscope. And as he watched under the microscope and watched the dust particles, they were all jiggling around, hardly ever stationary. Nearly a century later, in 1905, in one of his classic papers, Albert Einstein showed that the movements of the dust particles were due to their continual buffeting by the incessant movement of the water molecules. Now, at this point, I want to make two very important points. The first is that this is not true of solid machines like computers. The atoms in silicon and metal structures may be vibrating, but they are not freely engaging in the fabulous stochasticity we observe in a water-based environment. The suspended particles can travel over unlimited distances, many times greater than the diameter of the particles. Atoms and molecules in solids do not do that. In living systems, they're doing it all the time. You can watch it. You label fluorescence um, you know, fluorescently, uh, any chemical in a living cell, you'll find it travels all the way around the cell. The second point is that all the molecules and structures in our living cells are dissolved or suspended in water. All, including the genome, will be subject to the buffeting that Robert Brown observed and which we now call Brownian motion. Well, these facts form a fundamental difference between living organisms like us and determinate computer programs. Does it matter? You bet it does. For wherever we look in our studies of living systems, we find massive, random, stochastic activity. There is no way in which living cells could be exempt from Brownian motion. And importantly, that is also true of our genomes. The DNA threads must also experience these chance buffeting since they also exist in a water-based environment. Now, I want to pause at this stage in the argument to make a very important distinction. The fact that biological molecules and the structures they form are subject to chemical stochasticity is not disputed by anyone. Neo-Darwinists, particularly neo-Darwinist determinists, like Jerry Coyne, for example, would accept that fact just as strongly as I do. What then is the difference between us? Neo-Darwinists actually enthusiastically embrace stochasticity. The random mutations in our genomes form an essential part of their theory of life. According to them, living organisms experience this stochasticity, but that is all that they can possibly do with it. The result is that we are subject during the evolutionary process to what they call blind chance. 
We cannot possibly help experiencing blind chance. And as organisms, we have to wait for the exceedingly slow process of natural selection to arrive at the very few random changes in DNA that can be beneficial instead of being deleterious. Importantly, they argue that during our lifetimes, none of those blind chance events can be used in any functional way. As a consequence, there can be no physiological basis for free choice based on molecular level stochasticity. And that is why neo-Darwinists like Jerry Coyne in Chicago conclude that free choice is just a magnificent illusion. The sentence in which he does this is so magnificent that I have to quote it. The illusion, he writes, of agency is so powerful that even strong incompatibilities like myself, he means himself, of course, not me, um, will always act as though we had choices, even though we don't, we know that we don't. We have no choice in the matter. But, he goes on, we can at least ponder why evolution might have bequeathed us such a powerful illusion. <laughs> now, notice the striking contradiction. Who is this we that can ponder why? Because from Coyne's viewpoint, why are we even capable of doing that and to choose either to agree or disagree with his statement? But look, I will leave that contradiction to one side. I can't deal with everything in a single talk to the IAI. Because I want to explain first why this is such a common position taken by neo-Darwinists. It's that they think that DNA replicates like a crystal. And that depends on another and even more relevant contradiction at the heart of the neo-Darwinist position. For even though it makes blind chance a cornerstone of its case over evolutionary time, it denies that it applies to DNA replication within a single lifetime. On the contrary, DNA is claimed to be a highly accurate self-replicator. The claim, and I quote, is that it does so by replicating like a crystal. Now, replicating like a crystal can only occur if individual components, that's the nucleotides, C, G, A, and T, can automatically insert themselves into the correct position on the DNA sequence when the double helical thread is unraveled. Now, to some extent, that does happen. The fact that DNA exists as a double helical thread means that when they unravel, each complementary thread can attract its natural complementary nucleotide to form a new thread. C likes to combine with the G, A likes to combine with the T, and so on. All of that is straightforward chemistry. And we can call it crystal-like if we wish. It's still a metaphor because it's not really a crystal. But let's forgive them that particular point. But stochasticity, including the nudging from those incessantly stochastic water molecules, will ensure that every so often the wrong nucleotide gets inserted. How often? We know, because it's been measured. It's, roughly speaking, one mistake in every 10,000 base pairs. Now, that may not sound very much. It corresponds, for example, to you and I making just one typo in a 10,000-word article. I think most of us would be pretty pleased if we did that. But now we come to the punchline in this talk. In a genome of three billion base pairs, that rate of error, the crystal-like rate of error, would amount to hundreds of thousands of errors 
replicating like a crystal is therefore totally inadequate to the task of near-perfect DNA replication. So, you won't be surprised to learn that organisms go to great lengths to assure that normally that degree of DNA damage simply doesn't happen. How do they do that is almost mind-bogglingly ingenious. Each and every one of those errors are carefully proofread and corrected by the living cell itself, employing an army of DNA cutting and splicing proteins to do the job. The outcome is so accurate that it can reduce that natural crystal-like error rate of 1 in 10 to the 4 to just 1 in 10 to the 10. That's a one million-fold change, and only a living cell can achieve this. To use Dawkins' language, therefore, the replicator DNA is not, therefore, separate from its vehicle, the living organism. And this alone destroys the central assumption of selfish gene theory. Now, I reach the second punchline in this talk. Not only does the living cell perform this miracle preservation of its DNA sequence, it can also regulate the error correction process. Uh, if the accuracy is down-regulated, for example, the result can be millions of new DNA sequences which the living organism can use functionally. It can even choose which parts of the genome uh, to protect and which to change. That is happening in your body and mine even now as we talk. The immune system is doing it by down-regulating the error-correcting process in just the variable part of the gene uh, coding for the immunoglobulin and giving rise, therefore, to a vast number of new immunoglobulins with different sets of claws, as it were, to try to grab hold. Now, I call these processes the harnessing of stochasticity, the control of chance enabling organisms to be creative. And the idea was first published just a few years ago in a journal of the Royal Society. Enable us to be creative? Could that happen within our nervous systems? You bet it does. Recall those protein channels in our cell membranes. Our nerve cells are literally packed with them. Those channels are continually jiggling around in a stochastic dance. And so I come to the final punchline uh, in my talk, and this is where consciousness comes in, because just as the immune system can distinguish between the various forms of DNA variation that enable it to latch on to a new virus or bacterium, so the nervous system can latch on to neural processes that can satisfy the criteria of social choice. This is not a new idea. It's not my idea. It was formed originally by Gerald Edelman, who won a Nobel Prize in 1972 for his discovery of the structure of the immune system's immunoglobulins. And he went on to suggest the same harnessing of chance could occur in the nervous system. He called it neural Darwinism. So if conscious organisms have such ability to match up their behavioral routines with the constraints of social interactions, including concepts of fairness and the other many values by which we live our lives, we have a process by which natural stochasticity can be harnessed to enable us to act with what philosophers call the only free will worth having. I've almost come to the end of my talk. 
But first, I think I need to give you an example of what I've just outlined, because I think many in the audience may be asking the question, how can Dennis Noble be so crazy as to think that a choice made somewhere, don't know quite where, but out here, um, affect my body? It's doing so all the time. And physiologists like me know that. Consider two identical twins. For all intents and purposes, they have close to identical genomes. Differences are very slight. One is brought up in an environment that leads him to choose to become an athlete. The other does not. And not surprisingly, their body builds are completely different. In an extensive study of such cases, physiologists have been able to identify the control RNAs, those small molecules that control gene expression, to enable their muscle proteins to grow. The decision to train as an athlete and provided that decision is implemented in practice, leads to precisely those changes at the molecular level that will enable the athlete to succeed. Now, I'm almost ready to rest my case, because what I've shown is that the harnessing of stochasticity, of chance, if you will, clearly enables a form of creativity and behavior that allows even social constraints and the ideas of value and judgment that go along with them to influence the physiology of our bodies. But why should we call this free will? And I come to the end of the talk. Doesn't it mean that we are still determined, but just by social interaction processes rather than by physical processes? Well, yes, in a sense, that is true. And so this is where I return to the very beginning of my talk when I said the empirical and the conceptual are necessarily related because we cannot define, ask, and answer empirical questions in a conceptual vacuum. We always need, therefore, to define what our questions mean before we can discover any empirical findings that may answer those questions. In the case of free will, that involves distinguishing between a physical compulsion and social constraints. What surely would disturb us, at least disturb me, would be that th there is a demonstration that we are always impelled to do what we do by purely physical processes. My genes made me do it is even the title of a book. I joke not. Being influenced, even feeling compelled by the social influences of shared values and judgments, for some reason, doesn't influence or worry us in the same way. We can even observe the same processes in other species. Packs of dogs, groups of monkeys, both have been shown empirically in field experiments to distinguish against non-cooperators in their midst. These distinctions between the physical and the social influences are surely the basis for what many philosophers are referring to when they refer to the kind of free will worth having. As the person Dennis Noble, I'm not particularly worried by the fact that my upbringing and social interactions greatly influence my values and actions. Why ever would I wish it to be otherwise? Furthermore, influenced by social factors does not imply compulsion. Social factors and the reasons we may give for actions are what philosophers call defeasible. We can always, in retrospect, change the reasons we may give for what we do. Legal processes in our law courts uh, illustrate that process all the time. The concept of defeasibility, incidentally, was developed as a legal concept as well as having a philosophical basis. So, here's my conclusion. Clarifying what kinds of free will are worth having is a philosophical question. 
But I hope I've also outlined a way in which the physiological processes exist that enab can enable a kind of free will to occur, the only free will worth having. Indeed, I would go further. Given what we know about the chemistry of life, and which I've outlined in this talk, it must be true. I rest my case. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.